This is Matt Tullis. This week on Gangry the Podcast, we talked with Justin Heckert, an Indianapolis-based freelance writer who wrote the story The Hazards of Growing Up Painlessly. The story was published in the November 15th issue of the New York Times Magazine and chronicles the life of 13-year-old Ashlyn Blocker, who suffers from congenital insensitivity to pain. Ashlyn has lived her entire life without knowing what pain feels like, a dangerous condition that leaves her vulnerable to severe injuries that she might never even know about. To read Justin's story, The Hazards of Growing Up Painlessly, head on over to the New York Times website. You can follow Justin on Twitter, at Justin Heckert. Justin, thanks again for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Can we start with you reading uh, the first paragraph of your story, The Hazards of Growing Up Painlessly? The girl who feels no pain was in the kitchen, stirring ramen noodles, when the spoon slipped from her hand and dropped into the pot of boiling water. It was a school night. The TV was on in the living room, and her mother was folding clothes on the couch. Without thinking, Ashlyn Blocker reached her right hand in to retrieve the spoon, then took her hand out of the water and stood looking at it under the oven light. She walked a few steps to the sink and ran cold water over all her faded white scars, then called to her mother, I just put my fingers in. Her mother, Tara Blocker, dropped the clothes and rushed to her daughter's side. Oh my lord, she said, after 13 years, that same old fear. And she got some ice and gently pressed it against her daughter's hand, relieved that the burn wasn't worse. Uh, the story is so fascinating, uh, and also, you know, at times excruciating. I should mention that uh, the story ran in the November 15th uh, issue of New York Times Magazine. Uh, I'm curious, I'm really curious as to how you found the story. Um, I was about 24 years old, um, and my first job was at Atlanta Magazine, um, and I was essentially just writing um you know, long form nonfiction. Uh, and I would write about five stories. I was there for, um, two and a half years. So I wrote about, I guess like 10 features. Um, and so while I was looking for stuff to do, um, I saw, I saw something about her. One of the very first things about her when she was like five years old. Um, and I can't remember if it was on CNN or if it was on the Atlanta journal constitution homepage, but whatever it was, it was very short. And, um, you know, I I immediately was sort of in awe of the fact that, she, that this little girl couldn't feel pain, and that in the article it said that she was maybe one in a billion. Uh, and I thought, you know, this little girl lives in a small town in Georgia. I was living in Atlanta. It seemed like it lent itself perfectly to, to what I was doing, um, which were like six, seven thousand word stories. Um, and so I contacted. I contacted Tara Blocker. Uh, I guess I found her number in the phone book and called her. And they had been, this was at a time when they had been on Good Morning America, when they had been, uh, and, and that, you know, lent them some other, the AP did a story about her, and I read that. And so they had been, they were, they were just coming out of sort of a crucible of like a bunch of interviews. And she sounded exhausted on the phone. And I said, you know, um, I'd love to come down there and spend a few days and, and, and write a story about your family in Ashland and see, she, she sort of like, you know, she didn't, she didn't jump at that. Um, she agreed, but I said, well, you know what, um, why don't I wait a while and let all this blow over and then I'll come back down there. And so I, I, I put the story in my back pocket and then it's like, you know, 
um, eight years later. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I went through a whole nother job doing, uh, you know, I mean, I went to ESPN and then, um, just sort of, uh, came back to this after I left. Um, and I knew that, you know, someday I might, uh, a few friends of mine were, were asking about her and they knew of the story idea and they were wondering about what had happened to her. And so this year, um, I called her mother again. She remembered me. Um, and, uh, I said, you know, how's she doing? And her mother was like, you know, she's playing the clarinet and she likes to, you know, crochet and, you know, she likes to watch the Disney channel. And she was 13 years old. And I, I thought, um, and one of the very, the very first story I ever did for Atlanta Magazine uh, was about this 13-year-old girl who went to the National Spelling Bee. Um, and she was great. And she was, you know, very well-spoken and very creative. And, and, and sort of her 13-year-old mind lent to this amazing aspect to the, the story of the Spelling Bee. So I thought, you know, she's 13. It's, um, I can probably do it now. And so... Um, I pitched it to a couple places um, where I have contacts, and they all thought it was great, but, but one of the guys said, this is a perfect story for the New York Times Magazine instead of us. And so he gave me the number to his friend, who was Joel Lovell, the, uh, the big story editor there at the New York Times, well, one of them at the New York Times Magazine. So he immediately uh, wanted it. So That's great. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to kind of sit on a story like that for as long as you did. I mean, did you... Uh, did did you think about that story a lot in the years when you weren't doing it? Like, how what was that like for you? I thought about it occasionally. I I I, I, I you know I I tried to read what I could find about her every year. I would type her name into Google, wondering you know wondering if somebody would do a, a piece like this. Um, and you know she's gotten a lot of international uh, cover. Like I think in the story I mentioned very briefly that she's been interviewed by Japanese film crews and British film crews, and you know she's done some some document. Uh, just she's been a part of you know some some documentaries, um, but nothing that anybody that in my opinion that anybody would have been completely aware of. Uh, and this was is this such a huge opportunity to write a story. Uh, about her and and that really waiting really helped the story because her life has been one of um sort of being the face of this and and her parents reaching out to people to try and and find other people like them and that really separates her from some of the other people in the story uh, especially a woman uh who who's in um the UK who they sort of decided to to keep it a secret forever um, until they got in contact with with Ashlyn and, and some other people and and then realized that that uh, that it wasn't something um, that they would have to keep a secret. You know that was so fascinating to me and it just when I found uh, that woman uh, Karen Can uh, she just lent a whole new dimension to the story. I, I knew I had to talk to her and uh, uh, Ashlyn's mom wouldn't even say her name because she was that private uh, and they knew each other from Facebook and um, so I, I literally just kind of begged her to tell me who that woman was. How, uh, so you, you found out about Karen from Ashlyn's mother? Did you know about her before? Oh, well, I have no idea. I mean, she's never been in anything. She's never given an interview. She's been just a, a person living a relatively normal life with, under these extraordinary circumstances over near Cambridge. Um, you know, she's a little bit older than I am, uh, in her mid-30s. And uh, 
<laughs> Tara was saying, we know somebody on Facebook who's in her 30s that has sort of can, you know, provided a blueprint. for." And I was like, holy shit. Um, there's a woman. This is the girl who feels no pain. I think I had something in the story that's no longer there. It's like, you know, the, the woman who feels no pain, um, who's, who's lived this life and, and can provide this map um, of what to do and what maybe not to do. And, and um, it's sort of this, another extraordinary part of the story is that nothing really happened to her out of the ordinary until she had a baby. Um, and she had sort of protected herself and looked after herself. And her sister also has this. And, you know, I mean, she gives life uh, and it almost kills her. And so I, I was just the fact that I discovered her and then she agreed to talk to me uh, was um, it really uh, is one of those moments in your life that you'll you'll never forget meeting somebody like that. Now, um, how late in the reporting did you find out about her? Uh, I, I spent about a week, um, two trips to South Georgia, um, and uh, I found out about her the first time. And I asked Ashlyn's mom, and she said, "You yeah, know, no, I don't think she'd want to talk." And and I said, "Well, you would you just please reach out to her for me." Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know if she did, the first, but then I came back, um, and then the family started to get much more at ease with my presence. And it's sort of like the second time I was there, we went to a football game, and Ashlyn played in the pet band. And then we went to Huddle House, and, like, we were drawing on napkins and, you know, almost got into a food fight. And so then it was kind of like I wasn't the reporter. And, and this always happens when you start spending time with people in my experience. They're just normal people who are kind of, like, skeptical of my... Uh, uh, of me being in their house, um, probably. Um, but the second time I was there, um, you know, they could sort of see, you know, I don't know, not, not ever being on the other, the other end of that, you know, you always wonder about how you're perceived, but they started to perceive me very well. And, uh, that's when I asked her again. <laughs> um, I asked her again, please, please reach out to her. I would love to try and talk to her for this piece. I don't want to, um, belittle anything that's happened to her i don't want to use her in some way except to tell this part of the story yeah i really i, th I think karen I, I think you're right she did give another dimension to the story because she almost is like that window into the future for ashlyn so i thought that that was really that was really an, an important part to include yeah i mean I'm i'm so thankful that she uh you know, we had these long email exchanges, and I, I called her. I, I went to the gas station, and I bought an international calling card, and I called her and talked to her for about four hours and burned through that thing, you know. Uh, and I'll never forget putting the phone down and just being exhausted from sort of the emotional weight of the company. This is a person sharing this, these things with you and um, just sort of trying to relate to what she's saying. You're like, you can't imagine sort of what her life has been like, even though I was going to try and convey that in some way. Um, and so I asked her some more, you know, uh, frank questions that I, that I would have, uh, you know, asked this, this girl who's, who's not even, you know, she's just, just 13. So uh, that it lent, it lent a, a, a more, um, you know, I could ask her some of those questions. So, it, uh, I, I know the, the one thing that fascinates me about this story is, the whole idea of like almost like the philosophy of pain and you know um you know, the reasons for it and, and the fact that it could actually be a good thing um how much did you think about that how much did you read about pain um can you talk a little bit about uh, about about your thoughts with regards to just the idea of pain itself and and how its absence could have this 
this impact on someone? I mean, I read a lot about pain online. I didn't go and buy any books. Um, I'm not a huge, you know, whenever I get assigned a story, unless there's a book about the subject or I'm not a big, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to go read some books on this topic. Um, and I know a lot of people are. Um, but, I, you know, I just um, I, I talked to a bunch of doctors for this story. I, I, I talked to some of... Um, you know, a couple guys who I would consider at the the top of their profession, uh, this profession, about um, about dealing with this sort of broader topic, and then and then just sort of um, you know went down and talked to them about this, talked to her daughter about sort of this broader topic that you're that you're mentioning, and um, addressed it in a way that I sort of was like very quiet in the narrative, but still there. Um, sort of like the whole thing, the whole story itself is trying to get at that thing, you know what I mean? Right. Um, instead of stepping back and saying, pain is more important, or some sort of nut graph, um, the whole thing is sort of a quiet... Um, Sort of like sending a quiet question into the sky about about pain, I think, or something like that. Right. Let's. Uh, can we go back to like uh, how how long did you stay at their house, and, and what was that time like when you? I think you you spent the night in their house. Is that right? No, I did no. not. Uh-uh. I was staying uh, at the Comfort Inn in Blackshear, Georgia, <laughs> which is about ten minutes away, because um, their little town doesn't have a hotel. But I no, I did not stay the night there, and uh, you know, I hung out with them um, for about three hours every day. And again, the first time, I would just go over to their house, and 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 Tara, you know, would fix dinner, and 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 um, John would get home from work, and then they would all sit down, and we would talk, and. Um, you know, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would help. I would get her parents in on on helping ask questions. I would, I would ask them, and then we would all kind of be in the kitchen or something, and and then they would, since they know Ashlyn a lot better. I mean, they would sort of, we would sort of like try a lot of ways to involve her and and, and get her talking. And uh, you know, I wouldn't ever. I mean, she's she's great. I, I wouldn't ever just sort of ask her parents to answer for her. And I would ask her, and then she would like giggle and be like, "I don't know." And then her parents would sort of try to step in and like, you know, maybe grill her a little bit about whatever I was asking. Right. There's a scene toward the middle of the story when Ashlyn's dad comes home from work, uh, and he he tells the story of the coworker who who asked him like, "What would happen if she cut off her hand?" Um, were you there when that when that when he came home from work that day? Because that, that's a great yeah. scene that you set up there. Yeah, that was verbatim. Um, there's another scene that I didn't use. Um, that's also a bit of a dialogue between a few people, and and that actually the, the guy got that into the sixth floor blog. But it was about John asking Derek what sort of this meant, and and uh, did he understand it fully? And you could tell that he sort of did, but didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was there for all for all of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think and I, later in that same scene. Uh, I, I think there's a real, probably one of the most poignant moments I think for me in the story is uh, when, like, her, when her dad uh, asked Ashlyn, "So what is hurt?" and she couldn't answer the question. So that was that was a great, a great, I think, part of the story that really brings home the idea that you were writing about. Is she even though she has been, she has learned in in, in many a social setting how to, how to react to things. There was a scene about her dad farting at the kitchen table, and Ashton was like, "Oh my god!" and and like covering her nose and up. But she can't smell. I mean, everything that she experiences, you know, all the all the reacting to 
somebody saying, you know, oh, I dropped a safe on my foot. You know, ow. She has no idea. She just learned that because somebody else She's seen enough people react that way um, in, in, in 13 years to, to be able to sort of do that. But another thing that, that isn't in the story, um, I talked a long time to her friend Katie. So it was like, a, you know, like an hour conversation on the phone with another 13-year-old girl. And uh, Katie was amazingly aware of all of this. Um, and she was like, you know, sometimes... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll want to egg her on to do something like I would egg her on, you know, egg on my other friends. Like, you know, if we're playing dodgeball or something, go run out and like, you know, you know, somebody's throwing them right at her face. And then she's like immediately realizes and shouts, no, no, because, you know, she doesn't want her to get hurt. She won't feel it. And um, just completely aware of how, how Ashlyn could injure herself and uh, fatally injure herself. Um and so that was sort of another amazing conversation with this this girl uh, who lives near them, and and the the, the, the Katie's mom was just kind of like, I don't know what to do when she comes over to our house because I don't want her to get hurt, and so everybody in this town sort of has to learn these things about about her, and and it would be so different if they lived in a bigger city. Um, that's another part of the story that I was sort of trying to get at this little sense of place about uh, sort of where they live and how how that support group has, has really helped, helped her prosper. Because uh, this is a tiny little town, uh, very southern, very southern part of this, you know, like right down near Florida. Yeah, that really comes across, especially in those, the, like the, the, the descriptions of her coming off the playground and how she gets checked over by, by people to make sure she doesn't have anything on her eyes and her feet and everything. That, that really comes across like the town is kind of protecting her. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the lead, uh, uh, which you read uh, a few minutes ago? Um, you know, how, how and when and why did you decide to use the phrase, the girl who feels no pain, uh, instead of her actual name in that lead? That, uh, the, uh, part of an answer to that question is because I don't like, I don't like, you know, straightforward leads. Um, ever since I have been writing, um, I've been trying to write like, you know, you don't see hardly any fiction stories with, uh, it was March 15th. 2012 uh, or whatever. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that the girl who feels no pain has been used so much in stories to describe her. And when I was there in the town, and they were that was sort of like a, a way to to address the fact that immediately you know one immediately you know that about her in the story, and two it's sort of an homage to what people have called her over the years. And uh, the girl, the girl who feels no pain, the girl who feels no pain was in the kitchen. Um, and so I just sort of built off that. And uh, I, that was the, you know, I didn't change that at all. That was the very, they didn't change that at all at the times. So that was the first thing that I wrote. And um, <clears throat> so it was, it was knowing that about her. That's sort of the first way that I, di- when I discovered her, that's who she was in whatever article, but you know, the girl who feels no pain, it's been used over and over um, it isn't used a ton in my story, but it is sort of an homage to all the years of of of, of people describing her that way, and even people in the town sort of using that. We, we talked very earlier about uh, how you kind of kind of sat on this for about eight years. How do you think the story, aside from the fact that they started the camp, which is I think pretty significant, but beyond that, how do you think? Do you think you have a better story because she's thirteen versus her just being five? 
Absolutely. I mean, she can one for one thing. She can be interviewed, mm-hmm. and she has a personality. Um, I can't remember what I was like at five years old. Um, I, I knew I liked to read, and I can't remember. My, I like, like to watch cartoons. I can't remember much else about myself. She has started to experience the world uh, in a way where now you know, our parents at that point were. Um, you know, her life was like a cocoon. I mean, they were constantly watching her and constantly in fear. The the time has allowed them to sort of try and figure out if, if they want her to live a normal life, and they completely do. So they, they have to, like, cede to her growing in independence, which I say in the story, because she is becoming, you know, I mean, she's she's about to be in high school, and um, it's so much better. I, I, I don't know, subconsciously or whatever, way back when... I normally I normally wouldn't not do a long form story just because somebody really doesn't want to talk to me or whatever. But just for for some reason I I decided to wait and and didn't come back to it and it really worked out in the end um, because instead of just being a better story there actually is one. I mean all those stories if you go back and read them they're just talking to her parents and her parents are saying the same things about how they don't know what's going to happen in the future. Well they've got sort of a, a small window into into you know I mean 13 you know that's that's a while and uh so now they can address some of those things and I think it's a, I think it's so much not to say that her story isn't worthy or interesting or, or some 5 year old doesn't have an amazing story. But it really, I think it just really worked out, and it, it probably isn't the best thing to do on many stories. Um, I, I've never waited on any other story. Right. Uh, have you talked with the family since the story's been published? And uh, if so, what did what did they think? I mean, I think that they were um, they were they they seemed happy, and um, you know, they like when they get their message out there. And this, I mean, it's a testament to the the reach of the times is that. Um, the response has been incredible from from people all over the world. Uh, I've just gotten some emails from strangers all over the world, um, and I, I think that you know, um, families who saw the story, who have have a child, or were unsure of what to do, or they've reached out to Tara, and they've the people more people want to come to the camp, and you know, I mean that <clears throat> that wasn't my my goal was to just tell a great story and um but the the, the, by, the byproduct of that is to um is that you know uh this is getting a lot more awareness and and people are wanting to meet the family and donate money and uh and they were happy with it i think some other people um who are in the story i don't think were uh and um you know i mean <clears throat> a Karen was was seemed to, to to be happy with it. So, you know, it, it, it's one of those things. I mean, it, it's, it's a story in a, a magazine that millions of people read. And, uh, you know, I was, I was very happy with it, sort of no matter what they would have said. But I was thankful that they, that they seemed to like it. Yeah. Well, Justin, thanks a lot for uh, talking with us today. We uh, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, we've been uh, talking with Justin Heckert, uh, a writer based in Indianapolis, who uh, wrote the story The Hazards of Growing Up Painlessly. Uh, it was in the New York Times on November 15th. You can still read it online. The executive producer of Gangry, the podcast, is Glenn Battishill. It was recorded in the studios of 88.9 WRDL, Ashland University student radio station. Follow Gangry, the podcast, on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. Find us on Facebook for more information on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis.